Morning, Penn Valley family. It is great to be with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jason Carver. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm privileged to be part of the preaching team. And this morning, we're going to start our series on Christmas. Uh, so if you look at with me at some of the characters of Christmas, you're going to see that there's a place for you in this story. So we're only going to deal with one this morning, but some of the characters that you're going to come across are Anna and Simeon, Mary and Joseph, of course, Elizabeth and Zachariah, Herod, mm, the shepherds, and the Magi. Now, if you'll notice, I put after all of them kind of a little bit of a description, because I want you to see, and we want you to see as a preaching team, the fact that there's a place for you in this story. So Anna and Simeon, they're old Simeon's waiting around for God to show up, bring his Messiah. Mary and Joseph, they're really nobodies. There's nothing special about them in and of themselves from an earthly perspective that would make you think, yeah, that's who God's going to use. Elizabeth and Zachariah, they've wanted to have a child for years and years and years, and nothing's ever happened. The shepherds, well, they're kind of low man literally on the totem pole. And the magi... They come from some foreign countries speaking some weird language that nobody knows, right? And they just seem to show up, right? Because God's drawing a whole bunch of different people to himself through this season, and he's drawing you and I to himself through this season too. So as I was thinking about Christmas, I don't know about you guys what your traditions are, but one of the things I think a lot of people I interact with do is they tend to watch movies at Christmas together as a family. Now, some of them are funny movies, right? They watch Elf or Home Alone, something to get a good laugh. Some people really love the romantic movies on the Hallmark Channel that start two months before Christmas, right? And, and, and some love the traditional ones, right? Your Miracle on 34th Street and your adaptation of A Christmas Carol. But there's one movie that always makes its way into the discussion that the movie purists in every other category just go batty about. Because it doesn't seem like it's, in fact, a Christmas movie. Yet, anytime you ever see a list of Christmas movies, it seems to make its way there. Now, if you watch the first 10 minutes of the movie, you might think, yeah, this, this could be a Christmas movie because it's about a guy who travels across the country to meet up with his wife, who he's estranged from, to try to reestablish their relationship. He's a walk, workaholic. She's taken a job that she has wanted for quite some time, right? So he's meeting up with her. It's Christmas Eve, and her, her company is throwing a party. But that's kind of where you would think the Christmas story ends, because the next part is not what we traditionally think of Christmas. Because you see, what he is facing is he's not having to overcome uh, being able to, to speak her love language. He's not trying to overcome his ability to express his feelings. He's not having to deal with another guy who's coming to the picture. What he, in fact, is dealing with is the place that the party is taking place at has been overrun by terrorists. And, of course, we're speaking of the heartwarming Christmas movie Die Hard. <laughs> right now, you laugh. You laugh and some of you cringe. I can see you. I know you're cringing. Right? Die Hard, there's no way Die Hard's a Christmas movie. I am, not here to, I am not here to argue that. What I will say is 
The idea behind Die Hard is a little closer to Christmas than we may think on the surface. And so, today we're going to look at the villain of Christmas, the one and only Herod the Great. And so if you want, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, because that's where we're going to get started. And as we do so, let's take a little, little bit of a step back at what Matthew's trying to accomplish in his gospel. Matthew's purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel that the Israelites have been longing for. Remember what's happened up to this point, right? God calls Abraham, and then out of him he forms a nation. And then that nation is taken into captivity. Well, they go to preserve themselves, but then are eventually put into slavery in Egypt. God frees them, right? But time and time again, there's this cycle where they keep turning aside from him, spurning his love and doing their own thing. Eventually, they're taken back into captivity. Their kingdom is divided, and eventually it looks like it's done for good. And now, as Christmas arrives, they've been waiting for 400 years to hear something from God, and not a word has been spoken that we're aware of. And now it's time for Christmas, right? And so we get the warm and the fuzzy feelings about it. But Christmas looks a lot different the first go-around than what we normally think of today. So let's take a look together. I'm going to ask you if you would, if you would stand with me, and let's read this passage together, okay? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed oh, excuse me, for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. Then Herod, when he had seen that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for your word, for faithfully preserving it for 2,000 plus years, for the benefit of your people. 
for pointing us to truth in it, God, truth that strengthens and sustains us and points us to you. God, at this Christmas season, help us to understand this story better, to understand what you did for us, that we might worship you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you for doing that with me. So as we look at this passage this morning, there's four things I want you to notice. The arrival of Jesus was viewed as threatening. The arrival of Jesus was met with hostility. The arrival of Jesus was surprising in reality. And finally, the arrival of Jesus was filled with hope. Viewed as threatening, met with hostility, surprising in reality, filled with hope. Now, if you think about our Christmas celebrations today, right? They involve presents, lights and decorations, family gatherings, Christmas music, movies. But as we just read, that's not really what the first Christmas looked like very much at all. The first Christmas wasn't some romantic, sweet, sappy holiday that it's often made out to be today. It was a dark and disturbing time because that's the world that Jesus entered. It was a dark and disturbing world. Earlier this week on Tuesday, we celebrated or recognized, I should say, really not celebrated, recognized the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So on one clear Sunday morning in December, the quietness was broken by the sound of bombs and planes attacking the uh, U.S. Pacific Fleet. The, the U.S. had tried for some time to avoid getting involved in the war at all. But this would draw them in for sure. But the war had started long before that. In fact, the seeds of the war had started long before that. It happened right after World War I. And then Europe got drug in about five years prior to this. And now the U.S. is finally involved, right? And so what does that mean for the people of the U.S.? Well, some of you lived through that and recall it. But Christmas during those years was not going to be the same as it was before or as the same it would be afterwards, right? There was a sacrifice to be made. There were families who were not going to see their loved ones, some of them never again. There were family members who were going to be stationed overseas, there were going to be people who were going to mourn because they were going to get that notice that their husband or their wife or their brother or their sister or their child was killed, right? Christmas didn't look the same in that context, did it? But just like World War II began before Pearl Harbor, the war that we see this first Christmas began a long time before Jesus' birth. It began when Satan and his angels decided to try and rebel against God, to sit upon his throne instead of worshiping him as they had since he had created them. And that then weaved its way into our story, as we see in Genesis 3, 15, right? We see that after the fall, God says, look, there's going to be enmity between you and the seed of the woman, and you're going to nip at his heel, and he's going to crush your head, right? There's a war going on. Jesus is entering a war zone. And as the story continues to move out after Genesis, right, we see in Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, 
It says, why do the nations rage and why do their leaders plot in vain against God and his anointed one? Right? Man's idea is, I'm in charge, not you, God. And so Jesus comes into a world that has been plagued with that mindset from the very beginning. So let's look at the threat that Jesus' arrival poses. And as we do so, we have to know a little bit more about the main character here, apart from Jesus, of course, and that's Herod. Herod was very politically astute, and he had developed a relationship, a long-standing relationship, with the Romans. He had held various positions over time, and it was eventually granted the title King of Judea by the Roman Senate. He was a builder. He invested a lot of money into things like aqueducts, his own palaces, and perhaps the most grand thing he had ever done, the rebuilding of Solomon's temple. But he wasn't viewed as the rightful king, no matter what he would try. And on top of it, he was paranoid. He saw everybody as a potential threat to his kingdom. So he had his wife killed, one of his wives. He had his mother-in-law killed. He had three of his sons killed, countless officials. In fact, at the end of his life, he was very sick. He knew he was going to die. And his last instruction was that they had taken some of the local leaders prisoner. And he said, I know that nobody is going to mourn my death. So when I die, that very moment, I want you to execute every one of them so at least there are some tears shed on the day I die. This is the kind of villain that this story sets up for us. In fact, he was so awful that Caesar Augustus once said it is better to be one of Herod's sow, one of his pigs, because the, you know, the Israelites, they didn't eat pork, so it was safer to be one of his pigs than to be one of his sons. And this is the enemy who Matthew sets up now in this portion of the story. So let's look at this first part, and we're going to go back a little bit, just these two verses at the beginning of chapter 2. And they're more familiar to us, I think, than maybe some of the rest is. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the day of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, or magi, as a lot of your translations will say, came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was, with, was troubled as well, was with him. All right, so here's the first interaction, right? It's a day just like any other day, and then all of a sudden this caravan comes from out of nowhere through the streets of Jerusalem and up to Herod's palace, expecting that the king would be there. Well, they found a king, but not the one they were looking for, and that king was not exactly happy to see them, was he? And he was especially not happy when he found out why they were there. They were asserting that there was another king, one in his own backyard. And so what does he do? He devises a plan, right? This is a threat. What do you do with a threat? You neutralize a threat. So he says, hey, you guys just go on. Go on and find him and let me know when you found him. I want to come and worship him just like you. Right? But that's not exactly what he's planning, is it? 
Jesus was a threat to Herod because Herod's kingdom was about himself. And having a, another king on the horizon didn't suit very well. But notice what it says there at the end. And all of Jerusalem with him. It wasn't just that Herod was upset by this. It wasn't just that Herod was troubled by this. It wasn't just that Herod saw this as a threat. Now, when it says all of Jerusalem, understand, it doesn't mean literally every person in Jerusalem knows what's going on and is threatened by this. But the culture that Herod had created at the time would have been one of fear for a lot of the people. But at the same time, the very religious leaders who have, should have been waiting diligently for the arrival of the Messiah are themselves corrupt, just like Herod is. And so it's not just his kingdom that is up for grabs here. It is theirs, too, because they've carved out their own little fiefdom. You know, they've made agreements with him so they can do what they want to do, so they can have the power they want to have. And now this arrival of a king, of a messiah, no less, threatens to upend that. So it's time for another journey. Right now, here's part of why I, I kind of say that we don't think of Christmas in the right way. Right? Think of, think of the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem. And I am not, or, or way in the manger, I am not trying to say don't like these songs. But think of some of the lyrics, right? Uh, you know, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby sleeps, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I have three kids. I've been there for every birth. I can tell you that there was not one of them who was quiet after birth, right? Parents are laughing because you know that's true, right? But we kind of want to romanticize it. No, Jesus was just like any other baby, naturally speaking. Right, So it's not this romantic setting that we have in our minds sometimes that he's in. Now listen, it's great when you're in the hospital right, with a baby because for a few hours at least there are staff there who are well-trained and they're taking care of your child and maybe you get a few hours of sleep. Mary's child's in a trough, laying in hay because they couldn't find a place to stay. Right? It wasn't a great night in that respect for her and Joseph either. And they had already done a journey. And now here we are. Now some time has passed. We don't know exactly how much. But here we are now. Because of Herod's plan, God says to Joseph in another dream. And at this point, you kind of have to get the idea that Joseph is probably like, you know what, I'm just going to drink a lot of coffee and try to stay up at night because I keep getting these dreams. And it always seems really difficult. Right? And so God says to him, listen, somebody's coming for the child. Get Mary. Get Jesus. It's time to leave. But the place he sends them the way to isn't somewhere in Israel. It's not a few miles away. It's hundreds of miles down in Egypt. Now, the reason that happened was because there was a significant community of Jewish people in Israel at that time, in Egypt at that time, perhaps upwards of a million. So there was a safe place, a safe harbor for Jesus and his family to wait out Herod and his plan. So what happens? 
right? The threat now moves to hostility. Herod realizes that he's been duped by the wise men. He realizes they're not coming back. He realizes they're not going to tell him where Jesus is specifically, right? So plan A didn't work. Let's go to plan B, right? And it says here, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under. Now, for skeptics of the scriptures, this is one of the passages they'll often point to and say, well, you know, there would have been news about this if it happened. But if Herod killed his mother, his mother-in-law, his own sons, and various people throughout his entire year of, I think it was around 40 years he served in the capacity. If that happened, do you think a little out-of-the-way town where there was probably 10 to 30 children this age would have even made a blip on anybody's radar? Unfortunately, it would not have. But it happened nonetheless. And for those families, that Christmas certainly wasn't a joyous one. It was one filled with pain and sorrow because their children were gone because of the hostility of Herod and the religious leaders. So let's take a break for just a second here and let me ask a question of you. Why does Matthew include this story? And what would he have us learn from it? Why does Matthew include this narrative in his gospel account? We already looked at part of the reason, right? Because Christmas isn't a bedtime story, it's a war story. But there's more to it than that. Herod was a tyrant, yes, who was bent on preserving and expanding his power, but there's more to it than just that, I think. Remember, Matthew's purpose for writing his gospel account is to clearly show us and his original readers that Jesus is the long-awaited king. How do you respond to a king? Well, really, you have kind of two options in most cases, right? You're either loyal or you're in rebellion to the king, right? Historically, our nation chose the latter, right? But there were some who wanted to remain loyal to King George who actually packed up, had their entire houses shipped to Canada to remain loyal, right? So you can be loyal or you can rebel. But we're not just talking about an earthly king here. We're talking about an eternal king the King of kings, the Lord of lords. How do you respond to him? You see, because Matthew is setting up a comparison here. On one hand, here is Herod. And Herod is all about his kingdom. It's all about his power. And on the other hand, here's a baby lying in a manger who is supposed to be the King of kings. It couldn't be more different if you tried. So how did people respond to Jesus? Well, if you look through the gospel accounts, the four gospel accounts, there were really one of three ways you could respond. Some responded in fear, right? They realized who Jesus was saying he was, and they were scared. We saw that in Peter's life, right? They're out on a boat. Jesus says, hey, cast the net on the other side. They haul in the fish. And Peter's like, Lord, please go away. I'm a sinful man. I don't belong anywhere near you. 
Others, like Herod, respond in hostility, right, in the religious leaders. They're plotting always to attack Jesus and assault him and assault the message of the gospel, right? And we deal with that today, right? It's okay to talk about God. It's okay to say, I'm praying for you. Those things generally don't bat any eyelashes, but as soon as Jesus is brought into the conversation, there's going to be a battle with somebody, right? But the third way is to bow down in ardent worship of them. Right now, Herod's definitely not doing that. The religious leaders of the day are definitely not going to do that. But those are really the only three options, save one that I'll get to in just a little bit. See, we're meant to compare these two kings. And then the question arises, which one represents you? Do you seek out your own kingdom? Or Christ? Let's keep going. So we looked at the threat. We looked at the hostility. Now let's look at the surprise. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and the mother, and go back to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, there's another dream, just keeps getting these dreams, to withdraw to the, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Now, if you're following along in the story thus far in Matthew, and, the, and chapter one and the beginning of chapter two are the much more familiar parts for a lot of folks than this part. If you're following along, you know that the announcement of Jesus, his arrival, who he is, seems counterintuitive to what you would expect of a king. So Matthew starts right with a lineage of who Jesus comes from. And in there, he includes a prostitute, a woman who pretended to be a prostitute, and a woman who had a child by another man who forced himself with her in David. Right? So that doesn't look like the kind of thing you would try to make up if you were trying to sell who Jesus is. Why would you include those, right? Because it's not a myth. It's a true story. But it goes on from there, right? And it's not just that we see his lineage is kind of up in the air. We see that those who come and acknowledge him aren't the best and the brightest. They're not the top of their game. They're not the most politically influential. They're not the, the economically influential, right? For the most part, right? They're shepherds. They're foreigners from a different country who have come to worship him. Now, that he's able to go back to Israel, surely he is going to go up to Jerusalem because that's where a king would be. But no. The story takes another turn that would be unexpected. It says, and he went to live in the city of Nazareth. Now notice, Joseph did not intend to go there. That was not the place he wanted to settle. Right? It's only because... God comes to him in a dream and he says, 
Don't be afraid. Go elsewhere. So he winds up in Nowhereville, right? Literally, this is about as far into the backcountry as you could have gotten. And yet this is where Jesus is going to grow up. This is where his formative years are going to be. If this was modern-day America, if you guys remember the pejorative that was used a few years back, this would have been flyover country, right? Because the coasts represent the elites, economic, political, uh, Hollywood, all those who are kind of glamorized in our society, right? But everything in between, now, that's nobody. That's nothing. There's nothing to see. You just travel through to get to your actual destination. And that's kind of what Nazareth was. It had no value. It had no importance. In fact, in John's gospel account, when uh, Philip comes to his friend Nathaniel and he says, hey, I found, I found a rabbi. I, I think he could be the Messiah. And what's Nathaniel's first question? Oh, where's he from? Nazareth. Nazareth? That, what good can come from Nazareth? Right? He's mocking it like there is no way this guy is the Messiah because he would never, ever come from that city. And yet he did. Right? Because we're beginning to see that Jesus' kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And that points us to the last point the hope we see at Christmas. <laughs> There's a little glimmer of hope in the story itself, but it, you have to broaden it out to see it more. But it says at the beginning of the last section, but when Herod died. Herod's plan was, I'm going to get this kid no matter what. And yet, just like it says in the Psalms, God laughs at those who try to usurp his authority in his position, right? He, he didn't see it as a true threat because he's God. And so he waits him out and eventually Herod dies, right? So now there's safety for Jesus himself as a child, but it goes much more beyond that. So let's take a look real quick together at the end of each of the sections and it's probably laid out this way in your Bibles. In verse 15, in verse 18 and in verse 23, there's going to be a reference to the prophets. Two direct ones and then one that we kind of have to deal with a little bit. So in 2.15, it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, up until this point, Matthew has quoted the Old Testament. But it's been two passages that are familiar to us. Two that we can directly tie to the Messiah, right? The one where he's referenced as Emmanuel, God with us from Isaiah 7. And the other one is Micah 5, right? You, a little town of Bethlehem, you know, that whole, right? Those are, those are ones we know. But now he comes and he says that Jesus going down to Egypt and then coming back from it later is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. And he goes to Hosea 1, excuse me, 11, 1. If you look at Hosea 11.1, 1, you will see that God does, in fact, reference out of Egypt, I called my son. But he's not, it does not appear, speaking of a messianic figure. He's referring specifically to Israel. He's saying that I called you to be my son, right? And this is in the midst of him telling them 
how messed up they've become and the fact that they're going to be taken into captivity. But now he takes this kind of almost a pause at the end and he says, but I still love you, right? So he refers to them in this loving term of son. Matthew takes this and it's kind of like, are you reading your Bible right, Matthew? This doesn't appear at all to refer to Jesus. But what he was seeing is what we need to see. What he saw was he went back in the story and he realized when they were in Egypt, right, initially they go there for their own safety and protection because there's a famine. But eventually a pharaoh takes over who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know the family, and he sees them as what? A threat, just like Herod did. And so what does he do? He enslaves them. He makes life miserable day in and day out. And yet God hears their cries. He sees what's going on. He's not slow to act. He's got a purpose in it. But eventually the day comes where he calls them out, right? And what does he say to them? I have a land prepared for you. What happens when they get to the land? Oh, we're not going in there. Look at the size of those people. We're like, we're like midgets to them, right? So they're not going to go in. Eventually God gets them into the land. Then what happens? They disobey again, right? And every time we see this cycle where God says, return to me, obey me and I will bless you. And every time, at some point, regardless of how long it lasts, they get to the point where they turn away from him. Now, Matthew's putting this together and he's saying, you know what, that passage really is referring to Jesus because he's the true son. He's going to be the son that doesn't turn away. He's going to be the son that does everything the father asks him to do. And then, at the end of the next stanza, in verses 17 and 18, we see, Then was fulfilled what was spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are, it says care, it shouldn't be, it's are, are no more. Right, so Ramah was a staging area when the Israelites were taken into captivity again. And what happened there was that they were, the children would be separated from their families. Many of them were killed because Babylon had no need for children in their estimation. And others who did survive were separated from their families and taken elsewhere. So the picture in Jeremiah is that there is this moment in Israel's history where Rachel, who's kind of seen as the perfect mom to Israel, is weeping and mourning because she sees what's happening to her children. But the context of Jeremiah 31 as a whole is actually a passage of hope that God is not forgetting his promises, but that a day is coming when he will restore his people. Again, it doesn't appear at all that it's referencing directly the Messiah, in this particular verse. But Matthew's going back and he says, you know what? Those tears have continued to this day. And they continued on that night that these children were killed in Bethlehem. But there's somebody who's going to wipe away those tears. And that's Jesus, the true king. And then we get to this last one in verse 23, and it says, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth so that what was spoken to the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, 
This is group participation time. I want you to call out what specific passage or passages in the Old Testament this is coming from. I see Evelyn. Evelyn's already on it. Don't bother, Evelyn. It was just a, it was, it was actually a, a question that didn't have an answer that you would have found. Because there isn't one, right? I, I, I kind of tricked you, Evelyn. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Right? There is no specific passage that talks about Jesus being from Nazareth. What he's referencing is many passages in the Old Testament, including in Isaiah 53, where it talks about Jesus being despised. And here's how it's worded in Isaiah 53:3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Nazareth was the kind of place you would come from to not be esteemed. And yet that's exactly the place Jesus does come from and identifies with. So Matthew is looking back and he's saying, oh, you know what? I get it. The prophets, they were telling us this Messiah was going to be a different kind of king. And so he is. He was one that was despised by people, not one who was praised. Jesus is a different kind of king because he's bringing in a different kind of kingdom. You see, God generally chooses people we wouldn't choose, and he generally chooses places we wouldn't want to go to. He's not what we expect or what we demand, but he is absolutely the Messiah we need. He comes in weakness to save weak people. That's who this Messiah is, whose birth we celebrate this season. So let me ask you a few questions as we close. Where do you see yourself in this story? Now I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands for this. How many of you, either as a child or as a parent or as a grandparent or a grandchild, somewhere during the Christmas season remember sitting down and reading with your family the Christmas story. All right, almost everybody has. How, keep your hands up if part of that was the shepherds. All right, keep your hands up if part of that was uh, Elizabeth and Zachariah. Keep your hands up if part of that was the Magi. Keep that up if it, part of it was what we went over today. See, almost everybody's hand went down, right? It's not the kind of one you sit around and, and you talk to your kids and say, hey, you know, today I'd like to talk to you about children dying because of Jesus' birth, right? It's, it's, it's not it's maybe subconscious. It's not something where like, oh, it's a little awkward. What do we deal with this? Right? But Matthew has included this for a specific purpose. And it's one that we need to come to grips with, this dark part of the Christmas story. And here's why. I mentioned at the beginning, I hope you caught it, that wherever you are, there's room in the Christmas story for you. Well, here's what I want to say, and, and I know it's going to go over like a lead balloon before I even say it. But if there's one character in the Christmas story, at least collectively, that we are more like than any other, it's Herod. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. We're closer to Herod 
than we are to the other characters, at least as a group. Maybe there are aspects of some of the other characters you individually are close to. But we're like Herod. Why? Because we demand to have our own kingdom. We want things our way. Even on our best days, we can wrestle with that, right? We just had a sermon series a couple weeks ago that ended. Dave Brown finished it off for us in 1 John. And what's the very last verse of 1 John say? Little children, keep yourself from idols. Why? Because he knew our propensity is to idolize ourselves and want ourselves to be on the throne. To, we're the ones making the choices. Things need to work out the way I want them to. But that can't be the case if Jesus is truly the king. See, it's easy to recognize sin in Herod's life. It's easy to recognize it in the religious leaders' lives, in the gospel accounts. It's easy to recognize it in others' lives around us. But just a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus is going to say the following. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take, his, take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus isn't literally saying you need to go out and hate everybody. Of course, that would go against so many of his teachings, right? But what is he saying? You can't be my disciple unless you recognize who I am and follow me for who I am as king and lord. You can't set up your own kingdom and follow me and mine. They're exclusive. He's challenging us with that. And then in Luke 6:46 he says you call me lord lord and you're right that's who I am but why do you say that and then you don't do what I tell you? Right? He's He's going after the dichotomy in our lives where we want to say, yes, I'm with Jesus, and yet we also want to still keep at least some autonomy for ourselves. But Christmas is pointing us to the fact that we can't do that. Christmas is pointing us to the fact that we start out, as Paul says in Romans 8, 7, as enemies of Christ. There's a little Herod in each of our hearts. And we need to be cognizant of that this Christmas season. How does the story of Christmas impact how you view people around you? Right? We, we are living in quite a time, aren't we? The divisions that have occurred are so significant. The name of Christ dare not be mentioned. How do you view the people who have that perspective? Do you view them through the lens of arrogance? because you think you're superior, or has the Christmas story taken root in your heart and you realize, you know what? I'm a Herod too. Do you live as one whose citizenship is in a different kind of kingdom? Do you seek power? Do you want power? Do you want authority? Do you want to be the one who's making the decisions? Or do you step back and say, there's a king who's on his throne who loves me and who's called me, and I'm following him. So here's where the hope comes in, because the plot changes in the story, right? 
In Matthew 17, we see that it says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now, the companion passage to that is found in Mark chapter 10. And in there, it says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is finally on his way there. And look what it says. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. So all the disciples, they're back here like, why are we going there? And Jesus is up front leading the way. You see, the story has changed now. Because what once had happened, where he was being protected, he's now surrendering himself. He's now on his way to fulfill the purpose he really came for on Christmas. You see, the child who was once wrapped by his mom and laid in a manger is going to be wrapped up again. But the next time it's going to be in grave clothes and it's going to be laid in a tomb. The child who was once protected by those who loved him and taken down to Egypt so that he wouldn't be harmed is now going to be betrayed by one of his disciples. The child who once heard worship is now going to hear the very people who just a few days earlier were saying, Hosanna, are now going to be yelling cruelly to him, crucify him. And he's going to do all that willingly. Why? So that we could have hope this Christmas season. Look at me and here's where we'll end with Romans 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more will we, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, if we were, while we were in the position of Herod, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, so we, shall we be saved by his life. At Christmas time, Jesus enters a war zone not to rescue somebody who has accidentally fallen behind enemy lines, but to rescue his very enemies, which you and I once were. That's the hope that Christmas will bring about. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your story and for this dark part of it that really shows the light you've brought into this world. Thank you, Jesus, that though you faced an enemy in Herod and were rescued from him, you one day would come to rescue your enemies. And that includes us. Thank you that Christmas points us to Easter. Thank you that Bethlehem points us to Jerusalem. Thank you that the manger points us to the cross. And thank you that you willingly went there to save us. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we would submit ourselves to your King, King Jesus, that we would recognize how quickly we are apt to make it about us, to be our own King, to have our own kingdom, to demand things our way, and to see that we can lay that down, that we can lay down 
the yoke that is difficult that we pick our, up ourselves and we can be yoked with Christ whose burden is light. I pray in his name. Amen.